Hi everyone, welcome to Sad Me of the Past, where we invite an established writer to revisit a piece they wrote in their tender years. That piece may fill them with affection, regret, nostalgia, embarrassment, relief, delight, anguish, all of the above, or something else entirely. Every infant must take those early, brave, awkward steps when learning to walk. We writers must make our own early, brave, awkward efforts as we set out to master our craft. So let's travel back to that ancient time when we were bursting with hubris or scared to death, drunk with language or paralyzed by it, determined to become a writer or terrified that we didn't have the stuff. I'll show them, we thought. But what did we show, really, and to whom? I'm Stephen Lovely. I'm the director of the Iowa Young Writers Studio. I'm Lauren Haldeman. I'm the senior editor at the Writing University. And I'm Danny Colacci, and I direct the Maggot Center for Writing at the University of Iowa. So we should, we should explain the concept of the podcast, right? The idea behind this is that even the greatest of writers wrote um, some pretty bad work very early on. Not I necessarily don't, bad. Pretty... Young. Young work. Hubristic. Hubristic. Misguided. Delusional. Yes, all of those words. And so my idea, our idea, not to claim it. um, (laughs) It was Lauren's idea. But it was my idea. Is that we get writers on who have made it. Big time writers. Like writers who are at the apex of their careers that are just killing it out there. And we have them share with us some of their very sad writing from the past. And so we ask writers to come on, bring a piece. We're going to share it, rip it apart. We're going to workshop it, guys. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, wow. Nobody told you that part. <laughs> and then we will move on to what you're doing these days. I wanted to start off. Can I start off with mine? Of course. When I was thinking of the concept of this podcast, I was thinking of this book, Lost Hope Island by Lauren Haldeman. I wrote this when I was 11. Lauren, before you read it, could you describe <laughs> for, for, for the audience what, what you are holding? I think it's really important that they understand. This is a this is a book that is bound in that old school kind of 1980s, what do you call this? Like a ring binder? Yeah. We'll put a picture of it up on the podcast page. The pod, podcast page? The podcast page. Um it ha- my the cover has been um, laminated. laminated. There's a drawing of what people. It seems like people here think it's a coffin, but I, I'm pretty sure I was drawing a boat. Oh, oh. why is there a cross? <laughs> 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 why is there a cross on it, and why does it look so much like a kitten. coffin? <laughs> it, looks, it, it looks like a Denny's <laughs> menu if Denny's served coffin. <laughs> I don't that's I'm, why. I, wait, <laughs> wait, 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 do you, do you think that your subconscious might have drawn a coffin? I mean, I've always been a dark, a dark one, even in. I mean, the book is called Lost Hope Island. They <laughs> make it out, not to ruin the end, but they make it out. And is it sad, hubristic, and grammar? Uh, it's grammar. I got a low B, so not a minus B, low B. <laughs> art, I got a zero. She just didn't give me a single point. My teacher yeah, for, where, art, for art. Where, for art. Where's that teacher now? Is she hosted a hip podcast? <laughs> <laughs> She's in Davy Jones' Denny's Menu Locker. Yes. Handwriting, I got an S. Spelling, I got a C. Content, I got a low A. S? Oh. What I, is S? I don't know. Satisfactory. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But why would they? Everything else is like a firm grade. <laughs> right. Low A. Yeah. But, every, but the first part, S. Yeah, mm-hmm. and art. Oh. 
Like, is it a zero or is it an O? I don't know. It's an O for outstanding. And there's a comment, you have too many run-on sentences. So I'm just going to read the first part of this real quick, guys. Lost Hope Island. I accidentally put the title again on the first page of the book, and she marked me down for that. The sun was warm on my shoulders as I look out on the ocean. Let's go a little further out, Laura said. Laura was my twin sister, only one minute older than me. I was, like, obsessed with being a twin. <laughs> like, I really desperately wanted that. So every story had twins in it. I looked up to the sky as the sun was covered by gray clouds. We better go back in, I said. I could smell the storm in the air. The waves got bigger as I paddled in. Suddenly a wave crashed down. I woke up choking and then vomiting with water onto the sand. Laura, I said. I heard choking next to me. Water gugged and squit, squitted out. I heard her sniff fill and gasp for air. Dawn, she almost screamed as I could see her now. My vision was coming. Where are we, she asked. I don't know. I just don't know. So, <laughs> wow. That's, so that's better than a lot of things I wrote when I was 21. So, I, you know, well, it's pretty good. I, I first want to say I love that the name reveal at the end, like Dawn. Oh, and that I, was the name. That's my name oh. of the speaker. And my, my twin's name is Laura. I thought she was just proclaiming the sunrise. Oh, no. No. I mean, maybe Dog. I multiple meanings. I was already like, yeah. What was the twin thing, Lauren? I just so badly wanted a twin, and I believed that there was one out there and that I would find her. Oh, oh wow. And I still can, like you said. Wow. Um, I Twins got really preferential treatment at my elementary school. They got, they got their own oh. whole page of the yearbook. Like, there was a twins-only picture, and then they... I, I was like, okay, I see how it is. How many sets of twins were there at your elementary school? I would say an upwards of ten. Wow. wow. And I dated two of them. One of each... One, two pairs. <laughs> one boy from two pairs. I thought that was the whole point of dating twins, is you didn't have to choose. It's like a two-for-one deal. No, no, no. This was easy, because, well, because Kevin Long, his twin was Kitty Long. And we, uh, so I just dated Kevin for lunch period. And then. His, his <laughs> name was Kitty? Kitty, a girl. Wait, their last name was Lawn? Lawn, Kevin and Kitty Lawn. So would you say you were mowing the lawn? <laughs> oh, big time. Oh. For that lunch period, I was. We broke up after we went back to class. Would you say you had a ride around mower? <laughs> I said I cut it real short. <laughs> the second set of twins was Todd and Troy, and I dated Todd. What was his last name? Don't remember. I don't recall. Is that the last name, or you give us a fact? No, I don't. Okay. I don't feel like Todd and Troy need a last name. Why are you You're protecting him? Yeah, I'm protecting Wait. his identity. Were Todd and Troy identical? They were identical. But Todd was better. He was... Better? In what way? Let's draw a curtain I mean, as girls, we just all agreed. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm. So you just went with the crowd. It's not like I like made decisions on my own. Todd was the one that everyone thought just was better, so I, yeah. of course I dated him. Who were you involved with at the time of the writing of Lost Hope Island? I think this was sixth grade, so I was dating a, I was dating a non-twin at the time named Ryan. And so <laughs> maybe that's why I, I dove so deeply into the twins. 
You guys... You had a lot of boyfriends. In elementary school, I had a lot really of boyfriends. Impressed. Because wow. back then, you could go up to a boy and you could be like, you're my boyfriend. And the boy would be like, okay. Yeah, was I was so waiting for years for somebody to do that. It was so easy. And then like it just got harder and harder to get boyfriends. So, But that is how I got my husband. Okay. <laughs> like, you're my boyfriend now. Buddy. Is he a twin? What, yeah. <laughs> is he a twin? What's his twin like? <laughs> I wish, maybe. Wait, but let's get into it, Lauren. What? So, Lost Hope Island. Yes. Tell us what happens in this novel and, and what it means to you. Um, this was about these two shipwrecked sisters. Day one, um, the sentence is only one thing I can assume. We are shipwrecked. Day two, shelter works fine. So <laughs> I've said that about shelter. <laughs> like I just I didn't really want to describe it, so I was just like, all right, so it's fine. It's ready for use. And we now have food. No no description. Food found the flour when you put it in water puffs up inside is a tasty milk-like juice. Wow. That's beautiful. So, so what do you remember where you were? When, like where did you do your writing at this point in your life? Were this you must a, have been in class. This must you were, have been. You were in school. Yeah, because okay. um, this is bound. This, we had what was called a publishing room. Okay. And it, they would they would laminate your cover and they'd bind it. Where did you go to school? <laughs> you had a publishing room. <laughs> I went to school in, outside of Washington, D.C. Oh, so. oh yeah, I see. Yeah. Magical land of twins and <laughs> twins. <laughs> binding. Yeah. yeah. Right. And flowers with milky like yeah. juice. For, for those uh, who are listening to this as one does on, on podcast and can't see, we are, we are in a room at the University of Iowa uh, in Phillips Hall, uh, which is a very kind of them to offer us a space. But on this table, not only did we have Lauren's until she moved it a second ago to draw attention away from her beautiful artwork and, and writing. Uh, we had one bound book. We have a second bound book that you'll hear about in part two of this podcast. Stay tuned, folks. So this is our inaugural episode of Sad Me of the Past. So we are going to have actually two parts. Part one is going to feature uh, our first guest, Dave Kajanich. And part two is going to, fin- is going to feature Vinnie Wilhelm. We're so happy uh, to have you, Dave Kajanich, uh, on the show today. And uh, Danny, would, do you think you can introduce Dave? I will. I'm going to introduce Dave Kajanic. Kajanic. <sighs> I wrote it phonetically in my bio, Stephen. <laughs> I can redo it. I can redo it. No, no. It's, fix it in post. Uh, I'm excited to introduce our writers today. First up is Dave Kajanik. Dave grew up in rural Ohio and studied fiction writing right here at the Iowa Writers Workshop. He now lives in Los Angeles and writes and produces for film and television, including the films A Bigger Splash, Suspiria, wonderful TV show called The Terror, and the recent film Bones and All. Guys, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the podcast, Dave. <clears throat> Thanks for having me. Sad me of the past. Dave, tell us a little bit real quickly uh, about your connection to Iowa City. Uh, I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop between 92 and 94, uh, and then was away a long stretch uh, while I was out. I was a wilderness guide for a number of years, and then I was teaching at a university, and then I moved to L.A. and started this career writing for screen and television, and then got reconnected with folks back at Iowa. Now I come back periodically to teach or to do just to do things for this the school that are helpful. Cool. So Dave, uh, so maybe could you tell us a little bit about the piece you're going to read today? Maybe sort of set the scene. 
Uh, Where were you? When was it? How old were you? I, Give uh, us some yeah. context. This, uh, this story comes from uh, the 10th grade. I was uh, going to a very rural public high school, a, sort of a terrible public high school. And this was in Ohio? Ohio, right? yeah. Okay. And um, I was, uh, I, this was after puberty, so I was sort of, you know, I'd, I'd come out to myself, but to no one else because I didn't want to be beaten up and left for dead behind a Taco Bell or something. And so the humor in this story is a very aggressive, desperate kind of humor <laughs> yes. that is meant to obliterate any possibility that there might be uh, another emotional palette in the world. And just to, just to situate it, do you remember where you were when you wrote this? Did you write, do your writing in your room? Were you at school? Like, what was your place? Uh, I sort of did these everywhere. It's a very okay. short story. There are probably 200 of these wow. that were kept in an old, ratty, like, blue drawstring gap bag. Oh, yes. uh, in a footlocker that I still have. Uh, and I just wrote them kind of manically, you know, and, and then traded them around with my friends like trading cards. In fact, this one, I didn't have time to like, get one out of that bag to bring with me before I knew I was going to be on this podcast. So I sent an email around to a few friends to see if they, anyone had kept any of them, and someone sent this one back to me. So somehow it survived the years. Now, was this footlocker locked? Like, were you like... Oh, yes. Okay, okay. okay. Did every did your friends know the code or? Oh no no I would hand them out but, oh, but, but you, you know, were in charge. Most of them are still in this bag in a locked footlocker. The same one. <laughs> the same wow. gap bag. The same footlocker. No not the same. Foot oh locker. okay. Somehow the gap bag lasted but the footlocker. <laughs> I can picture that yeah, gap bag so big. clearly. Oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Wonderful. we when we started talking about this podcast, I was very excited uh, very excited that, that Dave you agreed to do it. Uh, and then when you spoke to me yesterday and, and uh, told me the name of the story, um, I got very excited. Yeah. Um, so if you're up for it, would you tell us the name of the story and then maybe read a little bit? The story is called Martin Cow Boom Boom Dead. It was at the Lucchese County Fair that Martin found the pin. It had fallen off someone's lapel, tack side up, by the show horse barn. The tack was just long enough to stick all the way up through the sole of his Romeo soft-toe boot when he stepped on it and felt it just prick his arch. It wasn't bad as lapel wins... <laughs> it wasn't bad as lapel pin wounds go. It didn't even bleed, but it was stuck good through the sole and he had to borrow pliers from the tack and saddle shop to pull it out. Then he cleaned the mud off with a shasta. When he did, he saw it was a pink enamel pin that read, Marrying Type. It was very cute. It was cute. It didn't have a fastener for the back, and he suspected it was for a lady. Wouldn't a man's Marion-type pin be blue? But he decided to wear it anyway in hopes of meeting a potential spouse. He'd heard at a fish fry that county fairs are wonderful places to meet a future spouse. Clean-thinking, sturdy future spouse who could A, work, work in the fields, B, repel home invaders, and C, sofa time. What? Sofa time's not even a verb. So he put it between his teeth and wore it like a grill, a word he'd learned on an episode of MTV. But, but wearing it in this way meant he couldn't, clo he couldn't close his lips or he would cover the special message. Perhaps just at the moment his future wife would look over and see him. What would the point of that have been? So there he went, all over the fairground, his lips pulled back and grinning in the face of every woman without a wedding band he could find. Women backed away from the intensity of this grinning visage. They backed away. Some ran. 
One got her teenage neighbor to push Martin real hard. <laughs> he fell back against the Lucchese County Drum Corps tuba section as they were <laughs> passing on their way to the main stage to perform. If someone had told him, sometimes married women wear wedding bands not on their ring fingers, but on chains around their necks. And if someone else had told him, sometimes married women don't have ring fingers or necks, he might have been saved that day. But instead he met Alicia Segunda Tavera Kovac, and a moment later, her Hungarian welterweight champion husband, boom, boom, now you dead, dead on mat in front of extended family watching on TV, local station, bye-bye, Kovac. As his life was ending, Martin Powell could hear Fleetwood Mac's Tusk beginning 600 yards away, performed extra bright and up-tempo by the drum corps. Those poor kids, he thought, it's always Tusk they make them play. It's always... <laughs> that, which is meant to be a braying EKG flatline sound. The story actually says, insert braying EKG <laughs> flatline sound here. <laughs> is it in, like, brackets? Uh, so you're, you're already you were already thinking. Right, there was stage, so much about stage <laughs> oh because I love. I also was a, in like I started our drama club. Oh you know what I mean, I, it, I, I just God, loved you were it. incredible, man. I'm so it's the my, only my thing I knew how to do. Self is so envious of your tenth grade self. To There's bring in a tuba off with a Shasta. The Shasta is yeah. oh, a great man. detail, and just the the poignancy of him empathizing with those tuba players, yeah. yes. even in his dying in moment. And the way he's kids. The way it's he's always tough uh, to play. <laughs> always. It's, you didn't go back and like edit that, did no, you? I From, did not. That was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything s sad about that. That's that was there's a beautiful. Nothing sad about that. Well, too. I mean, what about the description I was, of the spouse? I, I was really listening to the writing and <laughs> yeah. just how how just amazingly clear and lucid and detailed it was. Dave I thought it was really astonishing. <clears throat> yeah. What well, do you find to be sad about it? Yeah. Like what? Yeah. That someone would go around a fair with a Marion-type pin stuck in his teeth, looking for a spouse, and being murdered by a Hungarian welterweight champion. I mean, it's hot. To Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> it's very sad. But so, so that, that's interesting, because what I'm hearing you say is that the content in the story. We're really going to take this story seriously, aren't we? Yes. Oh, yes. Well, we're workshopping yeah. this story. No, but, no, we'll, no, we'll this see. Is, we'll, this, yeah. is, this is a legit question. Yeah. So you're talking about sort of the content is sad, but one thing that <clears throat> I know we've all been interested in when we were talking about starting this podcast is like, I mean, sometimes, as Lauren was talking about with her grades, uh, run-on sentences or the writing wasn't maybe where Lauren would want it to be now. Um, as we may hear from our second guest, uh, maybe some, maybe some issues similar, but the writing is, as Stephen said, I mean yeah. the specificity, the the tack, the enamel, the colors. Oh yeah. Um, when you were at this age as a writer, had you had t teachers and people either sh share this information on how to write? Did you have people that supported your writing, or like, how did you know in tenth grade? How did you do that? I couldn't yeah. write that story today. Yeah, did, had you been well, writing for a while? God. <clears throat> That's all I did because the one really great teacher I had was the English teacher. Okay. You know, so we read really great books, and you know, I would come out of every other class kind of baffled, you know, as to what I was meant to be learning. But there was a real clarity in her class. Mrs. Hyde was her name, and uh, yeah, she took everyone seriously, and in in a sort of that way, that hubristic kind of teenage way. When Mrs. Hyde was sick in the hospital, um, I thought I would cheer her up by bringing her this gap bag full of stories. Oh. Um, and God love her. She read some of them, at least. Um, 
Can you imagine being ill in a hospital and <laughs> your student just shows up, a bag full of these shows up at your door? Um, no, it, uh, it's all I, all, all I knew how to do because it's the one thing that, I mean, if I had had a great physics teacher in high school, I might be a, a physician, <laughs> a, a, a physics person, a physicist, but I am not. Instead, I am this. So what were you reading, like, in class? So the word visage popped out to me. It's very, like, picture of Dorian Gray. Probably like, that or Frankenstein. Okay. For sure, yeah. Um, I love that word. And I love that 11th grade you was like, visage is going in Absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember who, like, who were your heroes at the time? Sort of your literary heroes, maybe besides Mary Shelley. Like, who would you have wanted to read this and love it? Oh, uh, well, I mean. At the, the time. People may not know that Steve Martin published collections of short stories, and uh, sort of him and Kurt Vonnegut kind of, you know, we probably read Slaughterhouse-Five in high school, and there was something about that high, that sort of high key, but very um, almost obscure sense of humor, uh, and, and, and the use of real, like, constellations of random detail. You know, that I just, I thought it was sort of wonderful, and it certainly was... Uh, you know, was always like a lift for me, you know, to sort of be laughing in the middle of this sort of the context of, you know, the wreckage of a, of, of, of sort of the life I was leading at the time. And so I think I was just, I just thought, well, that's, that's medicinal. Do you know what I mean? So even though this sounds super silly, like my motive for writing it was to sort of, to create medicine. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think so. Yeah. Like yeah. even for yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, so, oh, go ahead. Well, like who... With that being said, medicine for yourself, because a lot of the writing we do for ourselves as well. When you first wrote spouse, so you wrote spouse twice, and then you wrote wife. So what were you picturing when you wrote the word spouse? Well, clearly, the, the, like the subtext of this story is how dangerous it is to look for a partner. It right. can get you killed. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah. But subtext, you know, for sort of like a, a gay kid in the closet in rural Ohio in 1986 is not lost on me. Yeah. And, you know, I haven't gone back and reread all of the stories through this lens, but I'm sure they all kind of line up, you know, like when you put a magnet in iron filings or sort of like point to this reading in some way. Yeah, that's wild that you picked spouse and then repeated it. And the way you describe your your fantasy spouse also was <laughs> I was I was not picturing a wife, I, I guess. Work in the fields, repel home invaders, <laughs> sofa time. That's all there. That's all you need. Sofa yeah, time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so, Dave, so the question I have is, hearing you read that story, and the detail, there's an element of humor. I mean, there are things that I know from the work you do now um, that are, are sort of percolating here and that are also working in really interesting ways. But one thing that's not in there that you use a lot now for writing for television and, and for film is dialogue. That's true. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Did you had had that either rereading it just now or even thinking about had you had you picked up on that? Do you yeah, well, I made it all the way through the workshop, really writing s stories and novellas that had very little dialogue. Mm -hmm. The reason I wrote a screenplay to begin with was to practice writing dialogue. Uh -huh. I thought it would help my fiction. So, and then I ended up falling in love with the screenplay form. But but that was the whole idea. I mean, I wrote a. I don't know, a 60-page novella about like the, the partition in India that had maybe 10 lines of dialogue in it. And, you know, people were starting to notice. Why do you think you avoided dialogue? I think, to be honest, because what I was uh, thought I would be doing when I was in high school 
was writing poetry, actually. Mm. In fact, I had been offered a poetry scholarship to a, to a university out of high school, and I turned it down to go to a different, a different college. Wow. And so I think it was, about, it was about cadence and rhythm and timing and detail and image, and I don't think I was thinking of this as narrative yet that required people speaking. It's a strange thing, but yeah. yeah. I, I just want to jump in and say, you know, to maybe reveal a little bit of my sad, sad me of the past. Like, I was also a high school student in rural Ohio in 1984. Where? 1984. Where in Ohio? Marietta. Not quite as rural, maybe, but um, but I remember being sitting down to write, putting on these round glasses that I thought like Joyce would wear, or like a or like a writer, and this sort of LL Bean Nordic sweater that I thought <laughs> a writer would wear, and sitting down at a typewriter in my room, same age, and and trying to write a story where a person was driving down the road and saw someone on the side of the road and just wanted to pull the car over so that some kind of incident could occur. I could not even get the car moving down the road. <laughs> I could not even get the car pulled over. I, I gave up. I remember giving up for like a year or two before I went back to writing because it was so hard. I couldn't figure out how to do it. So so listening to you read this incredibly evolved story that is so um, so accomplished and so full of detail and, and sort of finesse and grace is just... Uh, it's really astonishing. I think we may have to have you back on a later episode to go to a sadder you of the earlier distant past. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe when you were four. Right. Dave, I'm interested no. in how that story pulls through the work you're doing now. I mean, yeah. I, I know the most recent film of yours that was released is also about the danger of looking for a partner in rural America in the same time period. Well, in fact, there's a scene where someone's killed outside of a fair. <laughs> I mean, oh. it's... It's, uh, that also wasn't lost on me when I reread the story. It's like, oh, I guess I'm recycling the same, the same stories. Those rural just fairs slightly so different tones and yeah. formats. Yeah. Don't go looking for love at the fair. Sent <laughs> <laughs> to the core story of my id. But do you, like you say that you wrote a novella in the workshop about the partition of India. Like, do you feel like there's a way in which uh, you have sort of been circling back towards where you started in your work, or well, even that story, even that novella had a strong uh, uh, element of danger because it was about it was about uh, uh, a man who had who uh, from India who had after the partition had been had house swapped with a Pakistani family, and they had a hotel, and so he was staying in this hotel waiting for his son to come and meet him. And uh, you know, a group of, of Pakistani people came, and they were suspecting that he was he was Indian. And the threat was that if they if if they looked at whether he was circumcised or uncircumcised, they would know. So there was this strong again this strong element of if you if your privacy is compromised and someone finds something out about you, they might hurt you or kill you. I mean, this is it's like the thorn in my in my subconscious from having grown up. So, so on that note, um, you know, what what kind of advice would you give yourself? It's kind of a silly question, but I think it can it might reveal some interesting answers. But what advice would you give to yourself, sort of going back at that time, or or what advice would you give to a young man or woman, sort of in that same situation uh, that you you know that you were in at the time? Well, I think uh, for I mean the advice sort of I, I and I did give it to myself. I mean I knew enough back then to to know you can't lock that door. You know what I mean? So it has to come out in some form, right? Mm -hmm. And even if it's sort of these silly stories with, you know, somewhat um, uh, alarming subtext, you know, like, 
that even that was enough, you know, to sort of keep the keep the thing from from sort of overheating, you know, or, or, or melting down. So that's I mean, you have to find a way. You have to find a way to say what you need to say, even if it's in code, you know, even if it is obscured by, you know, silliness. I love that for you it's a way of acting out something without actually doing it in reality, right? So you so this character moves through a, a terrifying world and acts out and comes to a, a pretty rough conclusion. And you don't, you know, you as the writer can experience that like emotionally, but you're not physically experiencing it. And I think that that is a type of like survival technique oh, sure. in a way. The right? first image of the story is a, is a tack being driven into something. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was so good. But come on, like, you know, you don't have to have studied Freud for more than three minutes to understand <laughs> what's going on in the story. But I'm not sure I did at the time. I just knew it was released something. You know, it was, it was, it was helpful to get that out somehow. Yeah, to just... To, to sort of like um, investigate the secrecy and the dangers of the secrecy and that you're still doing that today is incredible to me. I mean, do we have like, as writers, do we have like themes? Like, is, do we live our lives writing out the same Same theme? thing over and over? Yeah, I think oh, definitely. For sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What is that sort of thing that Connie said to you once, Vinny, about how you... Yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, just walking down the street here in Iowa City. I ran into... Connie Brothers, who was the uh, sort of oracle of the workshop, who, and just a brilliant, brilliant woman. And uh, she asked me what I was working on. I hadn't seen her in a while. It was after I was at the workshop. She asked me what I was working on. I said that I was writing some stories, but that I really wanted to get on to something bigger. I wanted to start a novel, um, but I just didn't know, didn't know what to write a novel about. And she looked at me and she said, there is a story that you've been telling yourself all your life, while you're in the shower, while you're making macaroni and cheese, you've been telling yourself this story. It's always been there, running through the back of your mind, constantly. Sometimes you're not even aware that it's there, but you've been telling yourself this same story. That is what you're about. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of Alice Monroe, like writing about her mother for her entire career. You know, she really, all of, so many of her stories were about her mother from the very beginning all the way to the very end. So, first I remember thing. reading that giant John Cheever collection where it's basically the same, I mean, the same story, even the same over characters over. over again, but you never feel that he's redundant. Yeah. I feel like for me, it's um, part of it. We can talk more about this, I guess, in part two of this episode. But part of it is just sort of peeling back the layers to, uh, like, um, slough off the pretense and the junk that is obscuring that story to get to the what it really is. And I feel like I've just been in a constant process of iteration that takes me from the dumbest possible version that has some primal facade to it closer and closer, I hope, towards the actual version that I'll probably never get to. I'll just die. Uh, that's, that's, a, the dream. that's a cheery place to go. <laughs> that's uh, the dream. So, so quick question before we sort of end this part of right, the episode. Right. Um, so Dave, 
one thing that we were talking about when we were conceptualizing this podcast is also giving folks the chance to kind of um, do two things. So one, I, I'm curious if you could tell me uh, at what point did you start to realize that writing was something that you wanted to do? I mean, you were writing these stories both as a means of escape, as a way of kind of dealing with things on your own. When did you start taking your writing seriously, enough to the point where you decided to go to graduate school and, and then you taught for a while and then move on? Uh, so if you could start there and then I have one final question. I knew back then. Like, I, it's the, on, the only thing I ever wanted to be. That and a park ranger. <laughs> and the, which aren't mutually did, exclusive, yeah. yes. So I was able yeah. to do. Okay, so you well, always knew. I totally knew. I feel okay. like you can. I mean, not that you can tell, but but you can kind of. It's there. Like you know, you were pretty serious and accomplished for for that age. But yeah. you know, I mean, at the expense of. I guess other you could have gone on to something else. If you told me to like stack blocks, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. But this, I the one. It's the one thing I could do is my passport yeah. out. You know. Yeah. Have you seen these jobs where people go up for like six months at a time to be fire watchers? Yeah. In these like cabins? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be great to do that and also be a writer. Oh, sure. I so mean, you probably lose your mind. But think how rich the work would be just before you lost your mind. <laughs> and you can always get your mind back. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> well, that is a bold statement. <laughs> Dave, final question for you. Um, what are you working on now? Uh, I am now working on a TV pilot that is about teenagers in the 80s yes. Yes. <laughs> that are having issues with their <laughs> trouble with their uh, how they fit together in terms of their sexual identities. So, you know, nothing's changed. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, that oh. is amazing. I'm that so pretty like, much... proud of you. <laughs> like, Man, so... Talk about tying the knot at the end of the episode. Um, well, Dave, Dave Kajanik, thank you so much for being um, on the very first episode of Sad Me in the Past. Thanks for having me. That was a truly um, indescribable experience. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from the University of Iowa, the Maggot Center for Writing, the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the Graduate College. We'd like to thank the Center for Language and Culture Learning for use of their podcast studio. Sad Me of the Past is part of the Writing University Podcast Network at the University of Iowa. This network includes podcasts from creative writing programs and departments all across our campus. Visit writinguniversity.org forward slash podcasts to see our full list of offerings, including Writing Matters, The 11th Hour, Origins, The Short Coat, and more. <laughs>